Welcome to the Principles of Performance podcast, where we discuss how to optimize your health, fitness, and performance. Drawing on decades of experience of working as coaches, consultants, and trainers to top performers, athletes, and teens from professional sports to top universities to the U.S. military, Eric Degatti and Mike Perry discuss topics and strategies of how to perform at your highest level and be your very best. Join us and our friends and colleagues who are leaders in the fitness and performance industry as we investigate and challenge the most popular training, nutrition, lifestyle, and recovery protocols. Here we are with the Principles of Performance podcast. I am your host, Eric Degatti, and I am flying solo today without my friend and co-host, Mike Perry. Had a last-minute uh, travel commitment that came up that was unexpected, and I'm going to be honest with you folks. I actually don't mind sometimes when he doesn't show up because I get to get the guest all to myself, especially when we got a good one, but just don't tell him. Um, so uh, this week, I'm lucky enough to have Dr. Doriana Parkin with us. And she is someone who practices a family physician in Toronto, Ontario for 15 years. But then in 2022, she closed her practice and decided to pursue her passion for helping busy women attain their nutrition, fitness, and self-care goals. And so she launched her Simply Fit wellness brand on social media and started a 12-week virtual program called Beautifully Raw. And it teaches women how to lose weight, incorporate fitness into their day without fancy equipment, and incorporate self-care into their lives to improve their mental health. Um, she also hosts the Simply Fit Wellness podcast. That's how we met. And I was lucky enough to be a guest on there. And so I was excited to have her join us on our show since I started following on social media and putting out some great stuff. And uh, that's available through Spotify and Apple. And then you can get all her links uh, will be posted in the show notes. But uh, welcome to the show. Thanks for coming. Hi, Eric. Thank you for having me. Absolutely. So, so let's start by digging in with like, how do you make the decision to make that leap from like the traditional family medical practice to what you're doing now? Yeah. So, I mean, you know, I'm in Toronto and I, like, like you said, I worked for 15 years as a medical, um, as a family physician and, uh, our system, unfortunately, you know, with primary care is a bit of a hot mess right now. <laughs> um, and it's been like that for the you know last few years, but, uh, of course, with COVID, things got really um, sort of stressful and messy in primary care. And I guess I just got to the point where I was feeling a significant amount of burnout, um, you know, just the responsibility, the paperwork, the um, feeling a bit devalued by our, you know, by our government um, in primary care. And so, you know, coupling that with um, the 15 years of work that I had, where mostly I worked with women, I had a primarily female demographic. Most, I would say most of my patients were between the ages of like 25 and 60. So, so, you know, lots of women in my practice, watching them struggle, you know, with their weight, with their self-care, with juggling, you know, uh, work and home and kids and taking care of, you know, um, their aging parents. Um, so coupling that with my own sort of, you know, journey and love for fitness and nutrition in my own life, um, it was kind of, I guess, a natural, but very big jump for me. It was, you know, I thought, you know what, I'm, I'm kind of, I think my clinical days of practice are kind of coming to an end, for, at least for this stage in my life. And, um, and this was the next best way I could think of to help the women I really wanted to help. 
Awesome. Well, so if you, as I mentioned earlier, if you follow Doriana's content on social media, right, you're you're kind of well known for pointing out bullshit. All right, uh, being promoted on health. <laughs> all right, it kind of very uh, uh, Lay Norton esque. And so, uh, what are what do you see as some of like the most alarming claims being made by the internet gurus right now? Oh wow. Okay. Well, there's a whole lot of them. Lane, yeah, Lane is like one of my one of my inspirations. Um, so there's a couple of big ones. The first one that I see a lot that alarms me a little bit is the it's these elimination diets. So it's this information to like eliminate gluten, eliminate dairy. These things are inflammatory, and the the wording is incorrect. So this this the use of the word inflammation and inflammatory is being thrown around very sort of loosely. Um, without having the proper association with it. And it also causes a lot of fear mongering. So then, you know, people, not just women, but people start thinking, oh, I have to take out gluten from my diet. I have to take out dairy from my diet when really they have no reason to. And so some people might be like, well, you know, what does it matter? So you take gluten out, so you take dairy out, big deal. Because these are very good potential sources of nutrition for people. Gluten products are very, they could be really good protein sources. They could be really good fiber sources. Same with dairy, you know, dairy, especially for the postmenopausal women out there, you know, it's a huge source of calcium. And so people are being um, fear mongered into avoiding foods that they don't have to avoid. So that's one of them. Um, the other sort of, the other thing that really kind of gets me is a lot of the uh, recommendations to people to heal, cure, or screen for diseases with these non-standardized tests that are natural or they're less, you know, invasive. Um, and that's really worrisome because, you know, in, in medicine and, you know, when we talk about primary care and prevention, the tests that we use are very, very standardized. There, there's a reason why certain diseases have specific screening tests. There's also reasons why certain diseases don't have screening tests yet, because it, there's there are strict criteria that we look for when we're when we um, implement a screening test to the public. So when you see people saying things like mammograms cause cancer, you know, do like thermography instead, or uh, what are some of the other ones? Um, you know, do these at home stool test kits. Um, to check for, you know, parasites or cancer. Like these are very dangerous recommendations because people become, again, they become fearful of the tests that, you know, Western medicine has available that actually can pick up early cancers and cure disease. So that's another big one for me that I see a lot of on social media. So there's two things that you brought up that are really good points. I want to dig in a little bit because I can relate on my side of things in the performance and strength and conditioning world is first you talk about inflammation and understanding that that is a natural process that in some cases actually needs to happen and you want it to happen. And so yes. like, and there's also the, the situation where like there can be two things right at the same time that seem opposing, right? So like inflammation can be bad if it's chronic and it's from certain stresses and so forth, but like inflammation after a workout is supposed to happen. And so like we, we hear about cold plunges being this huge, uh, you know, uh, popularized thing. Now, cold plunges can be great, but if you do cold plunges and you're trying to gain muscle, well, they counteract each other because you're stopping that natural inflammatory process that allows muscle growth to happen. So both things can be right. And one thing doesn't have to be demonized for, for the other one to work. 
And so exactly. that's that's something that people don't understand because it's easy to get for a soundbite or a quick clip to see this is good, this is bad. Now, the other thing that that I see also on my side of things that I think is really important that you bring up with the testing that we should lean into is the importance of understanding false negatives, right? So yes. like for me as myself, right? I do a, a, an initial movement screening whenever when someone comes in. And so people will question and debate the validity of this movement screen versus that one. But let's say I find that you have poor shoulder or hip mobility, whatever it may be. The mm -hmm. worst thing that happens if I have a false positive is you got some extra exercises and maybe I change your workout a little bit, but we were, we erred on the side of caution. But if I miss that because I don't have that, right. And I skip that because, oh, I say the movement screening is bullshit. And then I miss that. And now you go to press something overhead or go to do a squat. And now you blow out your back or your shoulder. That's a false negative because I missed something that I should have picked up. And that's kind of important for what you're talking about, isn't it? You got it. You hit the nail on the head. And so you know, we refer to those things like um, sort of in the, uh, you know, epidemiology or, or the world of statistics, it's your positive predictive value and your negative predictive value. And how accurate is that test to, to pick up those false positives, false negatives, or to not miss them? Um, and I mean, you know, again, when these tests that we have similar to the way that you're performing your tests, they're specifically recommended because they've gone through those criteria. And we know that, you know, the tests that we have, they're low risk. And they're not going to miss too many positive people that are walking around with disease. And they're also not going to catch too many, you know, they're not going to falsely label uh, too many people who don't have disease. So, so it's, it's very, it's, it's a, it's a balance, right? And, and we can't, um, you know, obviously no test is ever going to be a hundred percent, but uh, you know, just like you said, it's very important to have that balance, to know what you're looking for, and to be able to pick up the, the cases and the, the instances where you are going to make a significant difference. So when you see things that are being recommended that you know are totally invalid, um, you know, it's a little bit worrisome because again, right? It's people can open up their phone. It's, this information is there at the click of a button. Um, and similar to what you were saying before about the inflammation, another big one there is cortisol, right? So everybody thinks cortisol is is this, you know, completely negative hormone that, you know, it, it's, it causes stress, it causes weight gain. But again, if we don't have cortisol, we die. Like our adrenal glands, we need cortisol to survive. But it's so there's this misconception because people don't differentiate. They don't contextualize cortisol. It's chronic cortisol levels that can cause issues but those acute cortisol levels if again if we don't have cortisol we don't survive so you hit the nail on the head it's you know two things can be true it's are you putting this into context um and do you understand sort of the science behind these things or at least can you explain it and understand the nuance and then the other thing that's tough is when you're in situations where uh, and we're on two different sides of the fence with this, but we also have to cover a lot of ground. We have to sometimes be a mile wide and not just a mile deep in what we're talking about. And it's really hard to, for us as professionals who do this for a living to figure out what's valid and what's not. How does the lay person even sort through who they can trust? Yeah. And you know what? That's a great question. And I think that I used to be, I used to actually be a little bit more intimidated with this kind of stuff because as a family physician, I'm kind of like a jack of all trades, but what's that saying? A jack, a jack of all trades, but a master of none, right? So my job as a family physician was to know a little bit about everything. I mean, in one day I could have had a patient, you know, I could be treating diabetes, depression, uh, concussion, uh, you know, like a rolled ankle it, and everything in between, a, a pregnant woman. 
So, um, so when I started in this space, uh, it was like a light went off and I'm, and I'm starting to see all these people recommending all these things. And I thought, I don't even feel comfortable sometimes basing, you know, saying something because I'm not even sure if I know enough to get on social media and post about something. And yet you can, you know, you see all sorts of people um, without credentials talking as if they're experts in these things. So I'm thinking if it's difficult for me to figure out what's, you know, what's true and what's not, imagine the person who is dealing with an issue for look, you know, who's looking for information. So it can be very overwhelming. There are a couple of things that I do recommend now for people to look for. If you're looking for somebody who you can trust online, and these are the things that I look for in people when I'm looking to learn about something online. So credentials is important, okay? Now, credentials isn't everything because we know, you and I both know, <laughs> that there are medical professionals online that are giving bogus advice and information, probably in the fitness world too. Um, but credentials do stand for something most of the time. So it does help if you have somebody who has, um, you know, credentials in the area that they are speaking about. But there are other things. So somebody who is, um, I would say, who's trustworthy is going to be somebody who understands, number one, the context of the thing you're talking about or the subject you're talking about, and they can explain a new, the nuances behind them. So oftentimes people will say, well, you know, what's the deal with, let's say, gluten? And most of the time when there's a question that somebody asks, the answer is not simple. And if somebody's giving you a very like black or white answer, it's very like yes or no, that sometimes can be a red flag because science and medicine and health and wellness typically are not so cut and dry, right? There's there's a lot of nuance behind, thing, behind things. You know, something may work in one person's case, but not in another person's case. And so if somebody doesn't understand the context and the nuance, to me, that's a red flag. Um, something else is, um, somebody who's very like all or nothing, you know, so you hear a lot of these people who are influencers saying things like sugar is poison. Uh, you know, now the biggest, now the, the common one is that oatmeal and Cheerios are poison because they've got chemicals in them. Right. And so again, um, that can be really, you know, scary to somebody who doesn't understand, um, that first of all, doesn't understand that there's, you know, a, a really you know, big misinterpretation of the of the studies that they're talking about, that that the person explaining this has not interpreted the study properly. But also, you know, the, the whole idea of like the dose is the poison, right? And so, yes, if you have, you know, artificial sweeteners is another recent one that's been out there a lot. If you're drinking, you know, 40 cans of Coke, you know, in an hour every day, then yeah, you're probably going to have too much artificial sweetener that can do something bad for you. But in the general public who are having one or two cans of Diet Coke a day, that's not going to harm you. Um, so it's, I would say, be very weary of people who are very strict and that have that all or nothing approach to things. Those would be my top red flags. Yeah, the answer should always start with it depends. 99% yeah. of the time, right? Exactly. Um, so, uh, and and I like what you said as far as credentials, because, you know, you do have to realize that like the old joke is, what do you call the guy who got straight D's in medical school? Doctor, right? Um, and, <laughs> yeah. and then, you know, so uh, um, let's talk about a little bit about scope of practice. You know, as a fitness, you know, professional performance coach, I have to deal with, you know, and we talked about this on your show, where I have to compete with podcasters and influence influencers who don't have a fitness background they've never trained anyone themselves 
um, and they're dispensing exercise advice. Um, right. On the flip side, I have colleagues who are in the in the fitness world who are now examining people's blood work and they're given hormonal advice. Like, how do you feel like about the crossover and like, when does it become inappropriate? Yeah, and I think that's a good question because I think, you know, there's, I think it's hard to not cross over at all. Like even in the content that I put out, you know, I, in a previous life, I was an aerobics instructor, you know, I, I took some courses. I, I mean, these are ancient now, but, you know, I've worked out along years. I've been doing strength training. So I, you know, I have a pretty good basic knowledge. Now, am I an expert in giving exercise advice? Absolutely not. So there's a difference between me saying to, to my group of women, for example, listen, guys, we need to start strength training. Deadlifts are excellent for you know, lower body strengthening for glute strengthening for hamstring strength, you know, let's do some shoulder presses to, you know, um, protect that rotator cuff. That's different than me getting these women in a gym and, you know, programming for them when I really don't have a clue what programming is like, or, um, you know, being very, very specific there. So I think sometimes you we can give general advice that may be a little bit out of our scope of practice. But we have to think about what are the consequences if that advice is incorrect, right? So if I'm going to coach somebody on how to do a deadlift, I better know how to do it properly or I can hurt them, right? I can I can make them do it incorrectly and then they, they get a back injury. Um, and it's the same thing with the medical stuff. So you have to think about, is this general information that I'm giving that even if it doesn't apply to this person or if this person does take this information and apply to them, is that going to you know, harm them potentially in any way? And if the answer is yes, then that is out of our scope of practice. So for example, in my world, it's like, I've seen a lot of influencers, um, particularly in the sort of nutrition space, talk about, you know, natural ways to uh, treat your thyroid and to be as, what's the word I want to say, ballsy? Is that, am I allowed to say that? <laughs> as saying to people, <laughs> come off, you know, you can come off your thyroid medication if you just do this, this, and this. And I'm there, you know, scratching my head thinking, if this person comes off their thyroid medication, you know, they, that is that can be a, a really significant source of medical, you know, problems for them. So again, and that's different than saying to somebody, look at, you've got this thyroid issue, you're on medication right now, maybe you should speak to your doctor about the lifestyle changes you can make to support your thyroid health. That's different than telling somebody, all you have to do is, you know, take some B12 for your thyroid. Um, so I think that it's, it's kind of, hard and maybe a bit natural it's, it's hard not to go out of school practice a little bit just because fitness and nutrition and diet they're very intertwined but i think a good um a good resource somebody who is you know really careful is going to know where that boundary is now there's there's something i want to circle back to so i i like the the point that you brought up as far as like what is the risk factor to say okay is this is this dangerous information but then on the flip side, there's also what is the opportunity cost if you don't share that information? So like, let me give you a great example. So in 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 my world, it, it, Twitter, it just, I'm sure, I always wonder like, is accounting Twitter just as shitty as strength and conditioning Twitter? Because I can't think of a worse place in the world than when I follow some of the strength and conditioning stuff on Twitter. But oh, like- it's a good thing I'm not on Twitter. <laughs> you, you see a lot of people who will like shoot arrows at people like Dr. Andrew Huberman when he dispenses his exercise to, a, advice. Now, when, when my clients ask me about his stuff, I say, well, look, that wouldn't be the program I would give you. Right. And and I think I could put together a whole lot better program than than Andrew Huberman. But I'm also a really shitty neuroscientist too. So that's really right. its place. 
But if, if because of his reach, he got someone to exercise that I'm never going to get to because I don't, I don't have those millions of followers that he has, then that is a, a win, right? When you have the, the right. you know, what, 80, 90% of the population doesn't exercise regularly to begin with. If he got somebody off the couch, and even if it was the not perfect program that the exercise geeks can, can argue about and, and shoot arrows at, at least he got them to do something, which is something that I might not have been able to do or they might not be able to do because they don't have the reach that he has. You got it. You got it a hundred percent. You got it a hundred percent. Okay. So I want to circle back to the hormone thing. So we hear a lot about like, all right, like, this type of exercise or this food or this ritual will, will boost a certain hormone. However, like the, from what little bit, you know, the, the fingernails worth of, of information that I know about the endocrine system, it is incredibly complex and that we need to kind of consider formal hormonal adaptations and not try to simplify them with such a reductionist approach. So, so talk a little bit about the whole hormone thing and where we completely go off the rails, trying to, to yeah. cherry pick certain hormones and, and certain uh, activities. Yeah. And you're, you know, hormones right now, I don't know why it seems to be like hormones are the be all and end all in social media these days. It's like somebody said the word hormone once and the whole thing just exploded, which in a way is, is a good thing. Cause I think that people are talking a lot more about specific hormones. Like, you know, um, I think women's health and menopause is, is kind of uh, benefiting from this a little bit, but, but you are right. The, the endocrine system, and I am not an endocrinologist. So again, I know a little bit about endocrinology. I'm not, you know, I don't know it, you know, I, I'm not an expert in any one particular hormone pathway, but the endocrine system is incredibly complex and it's also incredibly tightly regulated by our body. So number one, this is the first thing that I see happening with the, the discussion around hormones all the time that kind of drives me mad. It's the fact that people come on to social media and they talk about hormones and how hormones are affecting your weight and how hormones are affecting your mood. What hormones are we talking about, right? When we're talking, and people will say, you know, your hormones are making you gain weight. Well, there are specific hormones that are, that are part of our, um, our satiety and our hunger pathway. Those are not the same hormones as, you know, the hormones that are affected through menopause. But people who don't understand hormones don't differentiate that. So then you have people thinking, well, it's my menopause hormones that are causing me to gain weight, when really they're talking about obesity hormones. So there's a huge confusion around what hormones we're actually talking about. And then there's a, there, oftentimes there's a, a massive oversimplification of it. You're right. Um, and so, you know, what you really need to do is find somebody who is an expert in hormone health. And a lot of times, you know, for menopause, that might be an OB-GYN, you know, and, and now there's a lot of, again, there's a lot of information online. There's a lot of OB-GYNs online. You still have to be careful who you're looking for, for, for information, but, um, but you know, it's, yeah, it, people can take a very reductionist approach to this. And, and again, you know, medicine and health is not that simple, right? It, it's very rarely is it, you make this one change and everything gets better. It's just not that simple. So, if you have a particular issue, a particular problem, even if you think it's hormonal, it's very important that you speak to your physician, you speak to your specialist, um, and that if you're looking for sources of information online, that you're really sort of doing that with, you know, with a bit of a scrutiny, I guess is the word. Yeah. And, and so one of the things I talk to people about is how people make the mistake of making the jump from A to C. And what I mean by that is if A compound, you know, 
shows that it increases B. And if B increases C, well, A must help C, right? So like right. an example would be is if this supplement in a study showed it may, and I'm underlining may here, it may increase testosterone. Well, I know testosterone is involved in muscle growth. So if I take A, it must build muscle. It's not quite that simple. Not quite that simple. Absolutely. It's never quite that simple. And I mean, you know, again, that that's where we have to look at the people who are experts in research and in understanding studies. Um, you know, I'll give you an example of something I was literally, I was actually making a reel to, to debunk this morning about um, somebody stating that, you know, there's been a, a study showing that peanut butter can help with anxiety, three tablespoons of peanut butter a day. That's a gross misrepresentation of, um, first of all, what the study actually shows. That would be and, so awesome if it was true, though. I, love, right? I, could eat a, I could eat a jar of peanut butter a day. I know. I, I mean, think about how much happier people would be, right, if they could just eat peanut butter to help their anxiety. But again, it's it's this very reductionist, very, you know, overly simplified, um, you know, method that people use, like you said, to, to presume that if you do A, it'll affect C. And that's not the case a lot of the time. Now let's talk about the flip side is under like taking the step back and understand, well, why do we even need C, right? And talking about sometimes it's not what you add, it's what you take away. And then we talk about, we kind of bring in all the complexity of everything to say, okay, well, if you have these, these anabolic things like testosterone, and then you have these catabolic things like cortisol, and you say, well, if I just take this and it'll increase my testosterone, that'll help me, testosterone will help me build muscle. But what about the fact that your cortisol is so high that that's why your testosterone is not letting you build muscle and your cortisol is so high because you sleep like like crap and you're right. overstressed and you drink too much and you eat crappy foods like we need to remove those negatives first. Um, it's it's like a joke. One of my mentors, Greg Cook, would always say like, you know, it's like the guy who goes into to see you or sits down with a nutritionist and he's smoking a, smoking a Marlboro Red and he's got a a, a fifth of a, a whiskey in his hand and says, what's the best kind of omega-3s I should take, right? Right, right, exactly. But, you know, we need to talk about like removing the negative first yes. before we even think about adding things in. Exactly. And that's, and again, right, that like what you're talking about, it's like some of the minutia we can really get stuck in these days, like, you know, don't eat the, you know, don't eat this and, and sugar is poison and make sure that you're, you know, cold plunging and you're doing, and it's like, how about, are we eating enough fiber? Are we getting 7,000 steps in a day? Are you sleeping okay? Are you seeing a therapist to just manage your stress? Like, you know, it's that an, an, a paralysis by analysis. Don't get stuck in the minutia and the things that may not make a difference. Just, you know, stick to basic fundamentals, especially if you're just starting out. Well, the other thing too, in one of our workshops, I have a slide and it lists, I want to say maybe 30 things that are recommendations that you're, you're hearing now in, in the podcasting and biohacking worlds. And I say every one of these activities actually has validity and actually has benefit to it. But the problem is, is you get people who get so overwhelmed and they look at that and they say, well, I don't have the, I don't have the perfect morning ritual, so I can't do that. So, right. but I added all those 30 things up and it takes four hours to do. So you go right. ahead and tell a busy mom who's going to get lunches made, two kids off on the, on the bus and, uh, and everything, and then get off to work and then tell her, well, you have to get up and you have to, you know, get in your morning sunlight and you have to ground yourself and you have to journal and you have to do like, 
I don't have four hours to start my day. If I'm a 20 something biohacker who's sponsored and lives in Southern California and single, right. yeah, that's great, but I'm not. So how do I manage that information and, and give me something realistic that could be habits I can form? And that's exactly what I try to teach women, right? It's like, I'm a mom, I'm a working mom. I get you, I've been there, I've done that. So, you know, let's get all this nonsense out of the way. And how do I actually make you make some small changes that are actually going to affect your life for the better? That's my mission because we can really get bogged down in this. So going back, it, it kind of seems the easiest way to get clicks is just to demonize a certain food, type of exercise, 100%. diet, whatever, right? But in reality, are there certain things that are like absolute no's that you tell your patients? Like these are the, like, before we get started, like just know that these things need to get removed from your, from your daily habits or, or your, whatever it is, your intake. Well, I think that, you know, in terms of like what foods to avoid and that you should never eat, there's two, there's foods that you're allergic to and there's foods that you don't like, you know, essentially that's it. Um, or if you don't tolerate, right? So if, if for, in terms of all the stuff that we're hearing about, don't eat this and don't eat that, and this is toxic and this is poison. If you're allergic to something or you don't like it, then don't eat it. But other than that, everything in moderation. Um, and then I think there's just some really basic things, right? So smoking, right? We know unequivocally smoking is bad for you. So let's try to not smoke, um, you know? And then I think the only other thing really is, you know, sort of at the, you know, on the top of my head is, maybe this is more of a do than a don't, but just get some movement in. Don't be sedentary, right? Or, or figure out a way to, um, to get some sort of movement in and you might have to be creative. It might just be little spurts here and there throughout your day. But I would say, try, let's try to reduce the amount of sedentary behavior we have. Because really when we, when we look at, you know, quality of life and longevity, it's reducing the risk factors that we can control. Um, and we do that by not smoking, maintaining a healthy weight, um, you know, eating good food. And then there's the things that you can't control. So why stress over them? Your age, your gender, your genetics, your family history, right? Those are the things that we really can't do much about. So control the things you can control. And then, you know, just try to do your best living a good balanced life. Hey, everybody, a quick break in the action here. Hope you're enjoying the show and we appreciate you listening. We're working hard to bring you the highest quality content and best guest every single week. So if you could do us a big favor and go and like and subscribe to the show on whatever platform you get your podcasts on, it would be greatly appreciated. Be sure to listen at the end of the show also to find out more information about our courses, as well as a special discount code for all our listeners. Thanks again, and let's get back to the show. So I want to come back to the healthy weight thing in a second, but I want to talk about the balanced life part and talk about like absolute no's. Uh, that I try to teach people is that we cannot do this 110%, right? Mm -hmm. And what I mean by that is uh, we had Dr. John Berardi on, who's absolutely brilliant. And he gave some really cool information that he did on all of his precision nutrition people and had a huge cohort of thousands of people. And what he looked at was success and compliance. And he found that the biggest factor for success was that you just kept showing up right? Mm -hmm. That you just kept coming back to the program. Even if your compliance was lousy, like people who had as little as 20% compliance with the program, but yet kept coming back to it still got results. Now, obviously yep. you got better results at 40% than you did at, at 20 and 60% versus 40. But once you got to that threshold of like 80 to 90%, being a hundred percent on versus 80 or 90% on didn't make that much of a difference. It was a minuscule difference in the results. And, you know, a lot of people would argue, and there's actually data that shows that the stress of trying to be a hundred percent versus 
exactly. is actually worse. And so I explained to people, look, we're going to go by the 80-20 rule. If you follow what I ask you to do, whether it's nutrition, whether it's exercise, you follow it 80% of the time, the other 20%, you can slack off. Now, yep. if it's not happening fast enough or we have a deadline, so I work with some athletes that like they're not going to move back their tryout or their you know opening day or whatever it is um, just for them because they're not ready. So we may have to dial it up if it's not happening fast enough to maybe 90, 10, or maybe a hundred percent, but that's a right. really short window. And that's for the most elite athletes in the world. So I can't expect right. you to just jump off your couch and be a hundred percent tomorrow, which is unfortunately what a lot of people do, isn't it? Right. Yeah. And, it, and that's a recipe for disaster, right? So, um, you know, and so that's one of my teaching points to my, to my clients is that we're not, this is not going to happen overnight. You didn't get to the point where you needed me overnight. So it's not going to be undone overnight and that's okay. And you know why that's okay? Because if you're doing it slowly, that means that you are developing habits because habits take time to develop and to make them part of your day. And so if you're doing that correctly, it does take time. And you're right. I mean, unless there is an imminent medical issue, then we we don't have to do this all overnight, you know? And you're so right. If, if you know, I, I tell them the only time you're going to fail, really, truly, the only time you're going to fail is if you quit. If you just say, that's it, I'm done. I'm not, I'm not even going to show up anymore. If you don't quit, guess what? The next meal you have today, you get to make a new decision again. The next time you're sitting down, you know, pondering if you should go to the gym, you get to make a new decision. Um, you know, and, and you're right. It's, it's you know, initially... Um, you kind of reminded me of like, a lot of people are going to see that success very quickly at the beginning. And that's probably the most important. So if I can get a woman who's never lifted a weight in her life to get to the point where she's using 10 pound dumbbells for let's say upper body work, she's going to benefit more from that than for example, me trying to get from, you know, uh, a 95 push strict to a hundred pound push strict. Like that difference is going to be not to me, not as significant as getting that woman who is obese, who is struggling, who has no strength in her upper arms for her to go from that point to the point where she can just lift weight. That probably is so much more beneficial for her. So like focus on the little things, those little steps. If I'm sure you've read atomic habits by James clear. Um, it's one of my favorite books. Actually, I don't even know why I didn't read it for so long. I only read it a couple of years ago, but it to me, you know, is probably one of the books that everybody who is trying to dial in their nutrition, their self-care, just good habits should read this book because it really emphasizes the fact that it's 1% every day, just 1% every day makes a huge difference in the long run. Yeah, great book. And another book along the same lines that I would recommend that I just finished recently is someone gave me The One Thing by Gary Keller. And uh -huh. it talks about the, the domino effect, right? And understanding, and it talks about basically, okay, what's the one thing you could do today that gets yes. you closer to what you want to be tomorrow, gets you closer to what you want to be in a week. And talking about the power of dominoes. And I was talking to this with a client last night is, is you know, he came in with a ton. It's an athlete, really high level athlete, came in with a ton of musculoskeletal issues. And I gave him a program that was maybe 20 minutes a day. And I said, if I gave you something for every one of those musculoskeletal issues, it would have been a four hour program. Yeah. Right. But I don't, but, and you wouldn't have done it because it just would have right. been too cumbersome. But if I am good and I can sharpshoot the right domino, what they found with dominoes is that if you hit the right one, or if you hit a domino, just any domino, it will, it can knock over the next domino, even if it's 50% larger, right? And so if you have a two inch domino, it can knock over a three inch domino and it goes exponential. So if you do this geometric progression, a two inch domino 
by the 31st domino, you'd knock over Mount Everest, right? Something right. about 3,000 yeah. feet high. So it's about getting that that lining up. And, and, and then there's also the, the, the real art of coaching. And we've had a lot of great yes. guests on. I talked about this and, and you lean into this very well into your, into your content is that understand that it's not just the X's and O's of macronutrients and reps and sets. It's also that, especially in the demographic you're working with, there's fear, there's guilt, there's all these things that come along with it and being able to teach them to have grace with themselves that mm -hmm. it's okay if you have that Reese's cup is not going to ruin everything you've done to this point. Right. Right. Yep. A hundred percent. A hundred percent. Okay. So, um, let's go talk, go back to talking about professional recommendations. Um, as a medical doctor, you're obviously, as you've said already, and you see on your content, you're a huge proponent of exercise and you practice what you preach. Um, unfortunately, this isn't the norm in your profession, right? Um, how do we get more medical professionals to better understand and appreciate the power of exercise? So like, I, I think Peter Atia might've said it very well, or said that if you walked into like back in the days when you'd have the, the drug reps coming in to sell you the drugs and say, if I have a drug that can reduce inflammation long-term, can reduce, you know, uh, medical uh, signs of depression, can increase muscle mass, can increase longevity, reduce heart risk. Like you, the list goes on and on. I have it all one thing. You'd be like, nah, this is bullshit. I, there's no way. Yeah. There's that. But it does. It's called exercise. So yeah. it's the most powerful drug in the world. Why are we not recommending it more in medical offices? Okay, here's my honest answer. <laughs> because medical professionals and physicians struggle with the same things that everybody else struggles with. You know what I'm saying? We I totally know, know what you're saying. My, I left actually the one family doctor I used to go to because when I would go in for my physical, Doriana, my entire time with him was him telling me about his workout and is this good? Is this good? Is this good? I'm like, what about me? Like yeah. all I did was talk about his workout the whole time. Oh my gosh. That's too much the other way. <laughs> but, and I've seen this, right. I've seen physicians and I mean, these are family doctors prescribing cholesterol medications. These are cardiologists prescribing blood pressure medication. Um, I've seen registered dietitians that are suffering from obesity. Why? If they, we know this information, why aren't they? applying it because they suffer with the same struggles that everybody else struggles with. They're struggling maybe with some mental health issues. Maybe they're struggling with family issues. Maybe they are genetically predisposed to certain things and it makes it harder for them. Maybe they don't have a good support system. Maybe they're caring for elderly parents. So it's, it's easy for us to look and say, you should be doing this because you teach this. But what we really need to look at is, are these people any different from anybody else in the population? And if you're a surgeon who is doing rounds at seven in the morning, then you're in your clinic all day or you're doing surgery till four o'clock, then you have to pick up your kid from daycare. They have the same 24 hours in the day that everybody else does. So how do we make it feasible for them? It's the same way I would make it feasible for somebody else. They know exercise is important. They understand that. It's the, the ability to apply it to their life. And that's the piece that's missing. Because again, I see this in my clients, right? Well, I don't have time to go to the gym, so I just don't go. But who said you have to go to the gym to get a workout in, right? To these busy moms that I have, or these postmenopausal women who are, you know, who've never stepped into a gym and find it really intimidating. You don't have to go to a gym. You can get steps in going up and down your stairs. You can go, you know, you can do a thousand steps in your home between your Zoom calls if you're working from home. So 
I think that even for the medical professionals, we have to look and really, I, it's about it's about troubleshooting their their struggle points, their pain points, and then coming up with a solution that works for them. And that's you know that's why I don't give meal plans in my program because I don't know what time you eat, I don't know what foods you like to eat, I don't know how you you know um, I don't know if you're a night shift worker. So again, that's the beauty of coaching is that I get to sort of have a little sneak peek into your day, see what your schedule is like, see what your lifestyle is like, and then we make solutions based on that. It's not a cookie cutter approach. And with physicians and medical professionals, it's the same thing. So to your point, one of the things that uh, as I started to, to launch my own virtual coaching programs, one of the things that my clients, especially because I'm really focused on guys over, over 40, is that they love because they're dealing with a lot of same issues, time and, and, and you know, not enough ability to, to do what they would like to do. Um, and I think we've also, and to take the blame for my world and take the blame for the exercise profession, we've done a really shitty job of making you think that you have to go to a special place and it has to be an hour. It has to be all these different things. And we've scared more people off exercise with that than we brought them in. And so one of the things they love the most is I have in my app, I have exercise snacks. I have movement snacks that wow. are more mobility. I have just, I have hit snacks that here's a high intensity workout. It takes you nine minutes during your yeah. lunch. Break, go and do this, right? There's been research that shows if you take people uh, in one group, the control group did 30 minutes of cardiovascular exercise. The other group uh, did three 10 minute bouts, you know, breakfast, lunch, dinner type of deal. Yeah. And that group had higher compliance and had just as good a results. So we yeah. don't have to make these containers of 60 minutes that are fictitious, that are kind of made up to get the results that we want to have. And so um, I think giving people realistic things that they can work off of is, is a much better approach if you're going yes. to get the compliance and buy-in. 100%, 100%. I'm bouncing all over the place, but you said a word that I, I jotted a note down I wanted to circle back to, is you said, and this is a loaded term, Dorian, healthy weight. Okay, so uh, now, yes. okay. <laughs> now we're living in the Ozempic world, right? Yes. And you have a lot yes. of people, right, that are walking around and they're what I call skinny fat. Right. And yes. they think they've done something to benefit their health. Now, again, two things can be right at the same time. If you went from 400 to 300, you might have reduced some significant risk in your life. If you right. went and lost those 20 pounds to drop a few dress sizes and you now you're gaunt and you gave away a lot of muscle, you've you've actually made yourself more unhealthy. And there's a lot of data out there that shows if you had to pick to be a little bit overweight versus sedentary, um, uh, I'll take the little bit overweight any day of the week. Yes. Love this question. I actually love talking about this because the, the word, um, you know, the, the word obese has been redefined. And when we talk about, you know, when I was being trained in medical school, we used the BMI. That was, uh, that was how we defined obese. So I would just have a patient come in for their physical. We would do their weight and their height. And I would say, you are obese, you are overweight, uh, or your weight is okay. Based on that one number. Well, now we've had years of research um, and data showing us that that is not the case. And exactly for what, because again, I would be sitting in my office looking at a very lean muscular, let's say male patient and their BMI would say they're obese, but I'm looking at them thinking there's no way they're obese. They don't have any fat on them, they're all muscle. So <clears throat> when we talk about a healthy weight, there are some things that, that, are, that define a healthy weight. Your healthy weight is where your physical weight so the number on that scale and the amount of, of the amount of fat tissue that you are carrying is not having any um, negative impact on your health meaning you don't have high cholesterol you don't have high blood pressure you don't have joint pain 
So your weight is not contributing in a negative way to your health. It's the weight where you feel good and you can be active. It's the weight where you feel comfortable, you feel confident. So your healthy weight is not only defined by your BMI anymore. And the word obesity has now also gotten a slightly different uh, definition. So obesity is carrying excess weight that is causing medical um, comorbidities, like I like I said before, cholesterol, um, you know, diabetes, uh, joint pain. So you could technically, you could technically have a BMI. I actually just did a reel about this, a post about this. You could have a BMI that is in the old world obese number, but if that person does not have any medical conditions that are related to that extra weight, then they are not considered obese at that moment in time. Now, there's again, right? This is where the nuance and the context comes in. Can they always stay in that category as non-obese with that weight? Not necessarily. We know that carrying excess weight for a long period of time can eventually cause issues down the road. But um, but again, it's you know, it's it's looking at this sort of, you know, in a in a broader in a broader context, you know, along a broader timeline. So if we can get you to a point where your weight is, you know, not causing you any medical problems and you're active and you, you know, you're energetic, you're sleeping well, then yes, you can be carrying an extra 10, 15 pounds, but still be very healthy. Yeah, I'm glad you brought up BMI. I actually had a good friend of mine who's who's around my age who called me freaking out saying his doctor said his BMI was high and he's got to drop weight. Meanwhile, this is a guy who's going to be doing, he's told me he signed up for eight obstacle course races, including an ultra one this, this year. He teaches spin a couple times a week. He's in the gym four or five days a week lifting. So right. the, the, the last thing I'm worried about is your BMI. And then what people don't realize, I always remember reading a paper on the flip side is that anorexics, when they, if they, an anorexic dies from the disease, they actually have an incredibly high percentage of body fat when they die because they've given away all their lean tissue. Because they have no muscle, right? And actually, so so just quickly based on, you know, because of what you said earlier about the Ozempic, and I think you kind of bring up a really important point. Ozempic and the, the, the medications that are available now for weight loss, these are wonderful drugs. They can do wonderful things and they can help wonderfully, you know, they, they have really good effects, but they have to be used in the correct population. We are not supposed to be giving Ozempic to people to lose 15 pounds so that they can fit into that dress or wear a bikini on their vacation. These medications have criteria that are supposed to be met in order for a patient to take them. And part of that criteria is they meet the new definition of obesity, meaning they have a medical complication that is directly related to their weight. That is the appropriate patient for Ozempic if they choose to go that route. Um, and that I think, you know, initially, especially it was like, well, everybody can just take Ozempic to lose, you know, their, their 10 to 15 pounds. That's not what, that's not how those medications are supposed to be used. And you're right on the other, on the, on the flip side is that you can have people who look very lean. They're not overweight at all, but they don't have, you know, they're missing the lifestyle habits. And so they may actually have high LDL cholesterol, you know, or they don't have that muscle. Um, they don't have muscle tissue to protect their bones and prevent osteoporosis down the road. So it's, it's really, it's a very complex system, right? When we talk about weight and, uh, you know, and your numbers and your labs and your strength, right? It's everything all together. It's not one or the other. Okay. Speaking of labs and testing and, and the, the 
the uh, integration of, of what we're talking about into uh, medicine, into modern medicine, is there's some really, really strong data that talks about some of the biggest correlations with longevity. And yet uh, VO2 max being one of the biggest ones, right? Um, looking at simple things like grip strength, having an insanely high correlation with mortality, um, yeah. you know, basic body weight strength. So like how much more powerful could my yearly physical be if I could somehow gather some of that information? I mean, a grip, a grip dynamometer is $40 for a digital grip yeah. dynamometer that you could get. And if you added that in and you saw trends, or, or, or things that you would see in a physical that could be just as important markers as that blood pressure or cholesterol. Why are right. we not using some of these powerful tools? Right. And I, and I mean, again, that's probably just, you know, I don't know. I don't know how these, you know, you look at the task forces and what they recommend we as physicians do in our physicals. I mean, we don't even technically do physicals in Ontario anymore. We do screening visits, but all that aside, um, yeah, I mean, I, I don't disagree with you at all. I think a lot of this, these things would be really beneficial. And when we talk about the grip strength, it's not the, it's not that your hands have to be strong and that makes you live longer. Your grip strength, and correct me if I'm wrong, but your grip strength is an indication of how strong you are in general. So, you know, that comes into, you know, if, if I have an elderly patient who falls and breaks their hip, we know that they have a significantly higher risk of dying from that hip fracture. Um, simply because they fractured a hip. So, so that grip strength goes into, you know, can you fall and recover? Can you prevent the fall because you have good mobility, good strength, good balance? Um, and so, yeah, these are definite markers of longevity. And I don't, you know, like I said, I don't disagree with you. I think they would be really helpful. Um, it's just a matter of getting that into sort of the protocol, right? And that's a, that's a big sort of admin and, you know, kind of uh, <laughs> that's the admin side of things. <laughs> yeah. So, and you're absolutely right. It's, it's not just how strong are my fingers and hands. It's, it's, it's looking at, I tell people it looks at, I look at it for three reasons. One on the most global level. Yes. It's just how robust you are. And I know that there's, once you get below certain markers, just like with VO2 max, like there's a great scale that shows like, once you get below a certain mark, you can't live independently. And so, yes, at the high end, we look at that in, in for performance, but on a low end, it's can you even live independently and do the daily tasks? Right. So that's the lowest hanging fruit. The second thing that you can gain is if you see significant asymmetries right to left and grip, that's usually an indication that there's something going on uh, in either the shoulder and or neck, because everything, every nerve that feeds into your hand and grip comes through there. And so almost every time I see a huge asymmetry, there's some sort of dysfunction going on there. So if I can catch that early and say, hey, we need to get this checked out, or maybe it's something we can clear up with just exercise. That's may save you from that shoulder and neck surgery that might've been 10 years down the road that we can get an right. early sign of there. And then on the most micro level is it's, it's again, driven by your nervous system. So I can get a little bit of gauge into your readiness. So when I see my clients on a regular basis, I'll have them do the grip strength at the beginning of the session. And I'll say, okay, well, normally you, you know, you're somebody that pulls 90 pounds and now you're at 70 and I said, okay, well, what's, what's going on? You had to just sleep. How's your, oh, well, I stayed up too late or I'm stressed out, or I maybe had too many drinks at the party last night. And now all of a sudden I have to be smarter about my training program. And it allows me a little window into that. So it's a little bit of gratitude. so much that can be gauged out of that. Um, but as we're running up against, I want to talk a little bit more specifically about your population and, and it's, it's busy women that you're working with. And, and so talk about how, and why you think so many women struggle finding like this health and fitness plan that works for them and addresses their needs. 
Yeah, so I think a lot of it is just, you know, all the mixed messaging that women, I, I say women, but again, that's that's my population. I think there's been a lot of mixed messaging. There's been a lot of toxicity in diet culture. So, you know, uh, there's this sort of, it's all or none thinking, right? You have to get to the gym. Well, I can't, so I'm just not going to bother. You have to look like this. Well, I can't look like that, so forget it. I'm just going to give up and eat what I want. Um, so a lot of that all or nothing thinking can really actually just make people give up and quit altogether. Um, but I think for, for the most part, it's the common things that women, you know, that women experience. It's the fatigue, you know, it, just from, you know, taking care of them, of their, their children, their spouses, you know, having to give of themselves to their workplace and to their career. Um, especially now we're living in, you know, in a, in a time when women are reaching for really high positions and it takes a lot of, of work to do that. So there's limited time. Um, so the time, you know, the just the fatigue at the end of the day. And it's just, again, it's figuring out where can I put these things if I don't want it, like things like meal prep, things like exercise, if I don't want to sacrifice my work or my career, or I, you know, I, I have to make sure my kids are taken care of and fed and, and all that kind of stuff. And then the big one is not feeling guilty about it, right? So women are paralyzed by guilt so I could exercise today I have 20 minutes but my kid needs this and so I do that instead because otherwise I'll feel guilty you know I could exercise for 20 minutes but you know my uh my boss asked me to do this and so I feel bad if I don't get it done so a lot of this is teaching women that it's okay to take care of themselves in fact it's necessary <laughs> um and we don't just have to tell women they have to take care of themselves so that they can take care of other people. You have to take care of yourself because you deserve to be taken care of because you don't lose who you are the minute you become a boss, a mom, a wife, right? You still deserve to be healthy and, you know, energetic and agile. And so it's really, really trying to get that message home with my population. And that takes time, it takes repeat messaging and repeated messaging over and over again. I love that. Now, as someone who's now also kind of leaning into that same demographic, but on the male side is from the mental approach to it is, is it's changed somewhat over time, but not enough in that even if I look back at pictures of my grandparents and what they look like at my age and kind of what their expectations were, they were much more, not only, you know, comfortable kind of going to to the rocking chair early, um, but they also expected it. And yes. so the, the false, talk a little bit about the false expectations of, well, I'm 50, so this is supposed to happen. Oh, well, I'm, you know, 60, this is supposed to happen when quite frankly, there's people, you know, that are out there not only calling bullshit on it, but they're doing it. People like yourself, people like the clients that I'm working with that are still doing triathlons in their sixties, that are still playing competitive tennis, that are still really doing the things that they want to do. Um, and it just takes the, the, the right approach that you don't have to kind of, as you said, and this is a big point, give up your identity of who you used to be. Right. Exactly. Exactly. And you know what? At the end of the day, listen, we could live the healthiest lifestyle. We could do all the right things and still we can become sick or disabled or, you know, something can happen. But, but why do we want to throw in the towel if we don't need to, right? It's, it's like, hold on to that quality of life as long as possible. Um, and then, and that it serves you well, it serves your family well, because they don't have to, you know, take care of you. You get to retain your independence. You get to retain your joy. 
Um, so it's kind of like an everybody wins. Yeah. I, one of the things that, that I talk with my clientele about is, is part of your responsibility with this. And there really is a, a, a responsibility on your part that it's, you know, as you get to that threshold, it's not just about how much, you know, for my guys, it's how much you can bench or, 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 you know, do you have six pack abs? It's a responsibility to the people around you to not be a burden and yes. not be a burden that they're taking you to doctor's offices, you know, uh, all the time, or that you're, you know, you can't do the things that you want to do. And in the webinar that I have, I, I show a picture uh, of me uh, with my boys. We just went to Italy last year on a dream vacation, and we got to to mount uh, to to uh, hike the mountains in Cinque Terre, and and it was unbelievable. But mm -hmm. I, not only would would my kids not have been able to do that, I wouldn't have been able to do that if I didn't take care of myself the way I did. And if they had to worry Absolutely. about dad's heart or dad's ankle or dad's, you know, back, everybody misses out on that. So it's just kind of your responsibility to not be a burden on the people around. Yeah, I completely agree with you. I completely agree with you. All right. So we're getting up against it with time and I, I could keep you all day. And so, as I said yeah. earlier, this is kind of why sometimes when Mike's not here, I can, I can <laughs> really get into stuff, but let's talk about what you're focusing on now with your coaching program and kind of what projects you have coming up in, in the next you know six months to a year. Yeah. You know, this is really new for me. So I feel like, um, I don't know. I really, do, I'm, I'm open to all sorts of ideas for the next, you know, six, six months, six years. But right now, really, my focus is trying to build my clientele um, because I'm really, really passionate about trying to help as many women as I can. And the joy that I get when I when I hear my clients tell me, like, you know, one of my clients said the other day, she, she lost 40 pounds. She said she finally, after years, was able to do an unassisted squat. Like that, it almost brought tears to my eyes, right? She sent me a picture of the of her weights that she, you know, she was using while she was on vacation. She's working out on vacation. Like these are amazing things. And so I really just want to keep building, keep growing my clientele, um, keep launching my group programs. I, I do private and semi-private as well, but mostly it's my group programs um, because I see how beneficial it is for women to learn how to do this stuff the right way. Um, and really it's, it's that, and it's, you know, I'm trying to grow my, my podcast baby. So <laughs> I'm always looking for people to have on my podcast because I get a lot of information from my podcast guests. I actually learn a lot from my podcast guests. Um, and of course I like to disseminate that information to my, to my audience too. So, so really it's, you know, it's my podcast, it's my clientele, and then, um, just my content, you know, putting out good information that makes people feel a little bit easier, like at ease about, about this whole thing, you know, um, and, and feel a bit more reassured that they can actually do it. Well, kudos on all the great work you're doing and keep it up. And we'll have the links to everything, uh, up on the show notes. And we're also going to be posting, you know, highlights of this all throughout the week, cause there's going to be a ton of them in there. And so I want to thank you again for your time. Greatly appreciated. Thanks, Eric. Thank you so much for having me again. It was a pleasure to talk again. Absolutely. And we want to thank you for listening. And this has been the Principles of Performance Podcast. Thank you for listening to the Principles of Performance Podcast. If you've enjoyed our content, please like and share on your social media outlets, as well as subscribe and give us a review on YouTube, Apple Podcasts, or whatever your preferred platform is to listen to. 
For more information on the principles of program design courses and workshops, visit us at www.principlesofprogramdesign.com and follow us on all of the social media channels where we post new content every day. To save 10% on any PPD courses, enter the discount code PRINCIPLESPODCAST10 at checkout. If you have any questions we can answer or suggestions for the show, you can email us at info at principlesofprogramdesign.com or message us on social media. Thank you again for your support.